Hey, it's me again, John Asante, managing producer at Neon Hum. This week, we're producing three episodes that focus on anti-racist protests and the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, we did a lot of things. We freaked out, stayed inside, bought mass amounts of toilet paper. Some of us learned how to use TikTok. Others took to Instagram to brag about their homemade sourdough. Trump gave us all extensively fact-checked information about COVID via Twitter and his press conferences. And then a video of a man named George Floyd popped up on social media. This video documented his brutal killing at the hands of four Minneapolis Police Department officers. That's when we got into the really heavy shit. I talked about what I was seeing on social with my family, my friends, and my colleagues here at Neon Hum, one of which is our senior editor, Catherine St. Louis. She's going to be reporting today's episode. Hey, Catherine. Hey, John. Glad to be here. So, Catherine, we are Black people who consume a lot of media each and every day. And over the past weeks, we've been talking a lot about why George Floyd's video, of the many, has people taken to the streets, protesting in all 50 states. And it hasn't let up. I mean, we're in the fourth week now. Have you watched it, John? I'm not going to lie. I have not watched the whole thing all the way through. I've watched it in clips. It's been really traumatic, honestly. Um, That trauma is still ingrained in me of watching someone who could have been my uncle, my father, me, even at some point. It's it's just too much. And what, what about you? I've watched and listened in clips, but I have not watched the more than eight-minute video. I mean, something that does stand out is kind of the length of the video, and also that not only was a young Black woman taping it with her phone, but that there were bystanders. Yeah, lots of them. That's the scary part, too, is that it's just that, like, there were so many witnesses and still nothing happened. I think what makes George Floyd's video stand out to me is just the sheer calm of the cop who is killing George and how he casually has his hand, one hand, in his pocket. Yeah. And how he's just completely disregarding George's calls for air. That grave indifference is part of what I think so many people who watched this video found disturbing. I totally agree. We didn't see a huge struggle. It was just, it, it was like, it was haunting. It was frightening. And I really think that's what's, as you said, really made people more aware of what's going on, of uh, this sheer, undeniable police brutality against Black people, against another unarmed Black man. And it's all playing out on social media. All this at the same time while Black people are suffering in the middle of a pandemic and then now taking to the streets. And not just Black people, I mean, people of all races, we're all, like, they're all taken to the streets. So, I mean, this is a moment where there's so much going on, it's almost so hard to synthesize. It's a lot to wrap your head around. And John, you and I have also been talking about a strange thing happening online. White people are confronting their whiteness on social media for the whole world to see mm-hmm. in a way they really haven't before. Yeah. That's what's so interesting about this moment. It's not just been one video of a young white person on TikTok or Instagram talking about their whiteness. 
there have been a slew of them. Yeah. (laughs) Right? A a deluge, yeah. Exactly. To me, it seems like there are a lot of younger people who are doing this. I, you know, I don't know all the ages of these people, but maybe, you know, teenagers, uh, young adults who are learning about what the true meaning of the color of their skin grants them. Why am I learning more about Black history and systemic racism from Black creators on social media than I ever did in 12 years of school? Our uh, education system is whitewashed and we don't like talking about things that make us uncomfortable. Let's talk about 1492 when Christopher Columbus came over and raped, pillaged, and murdered white people for their land. Let's talk about 1619 when whites went and brought the first slave ship over because they had to go steal people from their land to come over and do their dirty work. Is this the free country that we live in? So here's the thing. We've been worrying all along about being targets because we're Black. When Michael Brown was murdered or Philando Castile was shot, the clocks stopped for us. We took the time to mourn and to rage in private. But in this moment, it feels like white people are outraged too, at least some of them. And if they're young and used to taping every moment of their lives, I guess we shouldn't be totally surprised that they're TikToking their newfound wokeness. I wonder if it's about virtue signaling or something else. Ah, man, I think it's a couple things. We're seeing these white people being outspoken and saying like, look, I learned this fact today, or I'm realizing that someone in my family is racist. And and maybe that's compelling them right now to say, this is the moment in which I speak up, that maybe I've been silent for too long. Yeah. I also think, I mean, I'm, I'm middle-aged, so I think about all the changes of hearts that aren't being videotaped right now. Mm -hmm. Like, there is no 45-year-old who's like, let me just hit TikTok right now because I'm having an argument with a racist relative. Like, that's just not happening. Right. Um, Or if it is, I'd love to see the video. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, So it is kind of a particular age group of folks who are going through an awakening right now. And wanting to show what they've learned, but also feeling a little lost. And I know that you talked to someone about this phenomenon recently, and to help make sense of this moment a little. I talked to Julia Craven. She covers racism for Slate Magazine. We deconstructed the videos and talked about why this moment feels different from the protests in Ferguson six years ago. And we talked about being Black. Being black is honestly pretty lit when you think about it, right? It's like we have a great, like, <laughs> we have a great cultural experience. Um, but the the stress of anti-black racism really wears me down. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us is learning to live through this moment and this pandemic. Today, Catherine has a story on how social media is sparking real-time, person-to-person, very public conversations about the anti-racism protests and the global pandemic, and how those two experiences are affecting people's actions, behaviors, and emotions. Julia Craven has been covering racism for a while now, so the first thing I wanted to know was... What makes this moment different? What's new here is that, one, we're having a mainstream conversation about abolishing the police. And that is, that's, that's different. And that conversation is happening in the middle of what is rapidly becoming a generational moment for civil rights. 
and we're in a pandemic. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have lost their lives. Millions have lost their jobs. I think that a lot of factors just collided with one another. And people are out there in the streets because they're they're angry. They're angry about George Floyd. They're angry about how the government, let's say, didn't handle the pandemic. And the people who were disproportionately affected by the pandemic were Black people. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of things that are... that. Um, that's different right now. What also feels different are the videos and TikToks of young white people either confronting their parents about racism or just speaking to their whiteness. I wanted to know what Julia thought of all this. I think the generation after me, I think Generation Z, <laughs> they're Z, right? They are yeah, Z. Generation Z. <laughs> I think... Um, they just have a lot more access to resources than I think older generations did. Um, in terms of, I can go online and I can Google something and it's like, oh, I wanna learn about this thing and I can learn about it. And so I think that's why we're seeing a lot of younger kids, particularly young white kids, really kind of go at their parents about racism is because they exist in an online world where that is something that is talked about and is talked about a bit more honestly. And Black Lives Matter, while very much being a on-the-ground movement, has really strong roots online. And yet some of these videos are so intimate. I mean, we've all had deep and unabiding arguments and with our parents, but it would never occur to me to take such an intimate moment and blast it out there. There was one video in particular, a young white woman named Haley tried to convince her parents that Black people's lives matter. But it was contentious, to say the least. If you're not okay with it, so stand against it. You want to know when I'll stand against it? When the Black people in the ghetto stop carrying an illegal weapon. When the Black people in the ghetto stop murdering each other. I'll start caring about cops when they stop killing Black people. Um... I'll start caring about black people and they stop killing cops. You can go back and forth forever, Haley. Yeah, I think contentious is saying the least. Her parents just weren't having it. They they didn't want to hear it. And to me, it sounded, I guess disheartening is the word, truthfully. Like, it, it's really telling that people have to get in shouting matches with others about whether or not black people matter. Um, And that's just bizarre to me, Um, I guess, because I've never gotten into a shouting match with a family member about Black people mattering because my whole family's Black. So that's not really a conversation we have. And what was interesting, too, about Haley's video is that at first the reaction online was praise. There was a Black lawyer from the U.K. thanking her for being an ally. This is what allyship looked like. So there were a few a few reactions like that. And then I got to say, I kind of loved Sonia Renee Taylor's response. She's a Black author and social justice activist. And here's a bit of what she said. Haley needed to be pointing out that whiteness and white people are so bereft of humanity that they will have a conversation about whether another group of people deserve to live. 
that white people need to be talking about whiteness. Stop talking about how hard black people are suffering like that is happening in a vacuum. Like black people are suffering at the hands of some amorphous blob we call the system. I think it was a great point. I think that um, it's, it's a point that James Baldwin made. It's a point that Toni Morrison made, which is that at some point we have to start talking about white people and we have to start talking about what it means to be white. There has to be a conversation about why whiteness operates in that way. Why is whiteness so insidious? What is it about whiteness and the political power, the social power that comes with it that allows this group of people who perceive themselves to be white to just revoke the humanity of others? What Julia says here is sort of the nut of what makes this video so powerful. Sonia is clearly trying to school Haley, right? Set her straight. But she's kind of being gentle with her too. Basically saying, hey, you're not asking the right questions. Stop talking about whether Black lives matter. They do. You and your family need to talk about your whiteness. You need to be asking, why are we sick? Julia says Sonia's tone in this video is familiar. It reminded me of every conversation I've ever had with a Black woman who was older than I am, who was trying to help me out. Which is like, I know you, like, hey, I'm glad you have this initiative in your spirit. That's great. That's fantastic. I'm I'm glad that fire is there. But let me school you a little bit on what you need to be doing with that and how you can do it better. It felt very much like, like Sonia kind of was coming at her from the place of being like an auntie where it's just like, Hey, like, let me, like, let me talk to you real quick because your heart's in the right place, but (laughs) like, let's discuss how you can do better. That's true. It is more like an auntie, less like a parent. I love that. Yeah. And I think that that's necessary. Um, Sometimes you have to be pulled aside publicly. Um, What Sonia was saying applies to the broader public. Like, if white people are going to take this initiative to truly be anti-racist, not just non-racist, but to be anti-racist, they have to start talking about what it means to be white. Because so many Black people, we think about what it means to be white all the time. (laughs) We have to. We have to think about whiteness. Because we have to think about how not to upset white people at work, our kid's teacher, or the cop that pulls us over. It's a lot. And right now, we've got COVID, too. Every day, I wonder how to stay safe in Brooklyn, how to keep my distance on narrow sidewalks, and how to avoid police attention on a morning walk with my kid. In the beginning of this pandemic, People actually thought COVID would be an equalizer of sorts. Of course, now it's clear Black people are disproportionately impacted. We're disproportionately dying. The root of the problem with the pandemic and the root of the problem with police violence in the George Floyd video is racism. And that's ultimately how I've been viewing the protests is that people are out in the streets and they're protesting racism. Because that is the biggest public health threat facing our nation. It's racism. Julia points out that many of the disparities we're witnessing in this pandemic are structural. They go back hundreds of years. So many Black people are essential workers, 
and we don't have access to adequate health care. Redlining made it impossible for Black people to buy homes in certain areas. And the long arc of that policy made it so COVID testing is now not readily available in places where Black people live. Some young people are learning about all of us for the first time, and their reactions are playing out online. One of those videos really stuck out to me. A white mom posted a TikTok of her Black daughter realizing what it meant to be Black. She's crying, so it's hard to hear her exact words. But she's saying, I could die because of the color of my skin? And the video went viral. I don't know if you remember this, Julia, but it was the video, very, very short video, of a 10-year-old girl realizing for the first time that she was Black, and that made her a target. What did you think when you first saw that video? I couldn't watch all of it. It was hard to to just see a young Black girl sitting there crying because, you know, the fact that she's Black is going to put her at risk of so many potentially negative outcomes. Yeah, it's true. Do you feel like 10 years old seems like rather late to be learning the lesson that that young girl learned? I, by the time I was in first grade, had been called an Oreo. My brother kind of filled me in on exactly how racist that was. Yeah, no, I think the sad part is that 10 actually is a little late. For 10 to be the age when you finally realize that and then to realize that for so many other kids, it happened five, six years ago. That's just, it's heartbreaking. Black kids don't to be kids. Last month, Julia published this great essay on Slate. It was about how Black people are stuck in a loop of trauma. And there's this one anecdote in the essay that so many Black people share the first time you really understand the implications of being Black. Julia took us back to that moment with her grandma. I had no concept of being followed in a store because I was a Black kid running around picking stuff up. And then my grandma gets me to the car and she starts explaining to me that I was being followed around because I was Black. And I just didn't really understand what she meant. I I didn't get it. Wow. I mean, you were seven, so that is quite young. But you wrote that that moment kind of taught you that you always have to be prepared for something bad to happen. Yes. That that's part of what it means to be Black in America. Yes. When I was in kindergarten, so probably about five, I had a white teacher who kept locking me in the adjacent bathroom to this kindergarten for hours at a time. She would always say that I had done something wrong, but it took me a really long time to realize what was really going on. And what's heartbreaking is I never told my parents. I didn't tell either of them. So it only occurred to me that that was racism. I I, I don't know. I think I was a teenager. 
So yeah, it's. It, I think for a lot of us, it's an, an early um, reckoning. And that's what made that video so painful. And probably what made it go viral is because that's such an intimate moment that's usually not taped. Right. How do you think racist experiences from our past inform like your days now? I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think that being Black is one of the reasons why I'm just so stressed out. Um, and not, it's not that Blackness stresses me out. I mean, being Black is honestly pretty lit when you think about it, right? It's like we have a great, like, <laughs> we have a great cultural experience. <laughs> um, but the, the stress of anti-Black racism really wears me down. And then I think about how that stress is weathering my body and how I'm already kind of susceptible to comorbidities and just all these other awful things because of the stress that comes along with racism. And then that further stresses me out. And it's just like a cycle. It's a, it's a spiral and it feels like a downward spiral every day. Is there anything that gives you solace about having one of the things that we're seeing on social media now, so many people of all different races marching to show that Black Lives Matter, protesting to say, defund the police. If they keep killing our Black brothers and sisters, then defund them. I mean, does that kind of give you hope? It makes me cautiously optimistic. I think that it takes more than protesting. Protesting is a incredible show of solidarity. But when I say it takes more than protesting, what I mean is that there has to be conversations within the household, like, like with Haley, right? Like Haley might not be anti-Black, Haley might not be racist, but she has to start or continue holding her family accountable for that. And it's not enough to be non-racist. You have to be actively anti-racist. So if those types of narratives and conversations are happening at home, fantastic. But all in all, I mean, it's a good sign. Yeah. Thanks for your time. This was great. Thank you for having me. This conversation felt very cathartic. Same. I like my interviews to be part therapies. I'm only half joking. (laughs) Thanks to Julia Craven for taking the time to talk with us today. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. That's it for today's show, but we've got another one coming on Friday. And Catherine, you're going to be in the host chair. That's right. I'm talking to Soledad O'Brien on Juneteenth. Amazing. All right. Well, I'm John Asante. And I'm Catherine St. Louis. Until next time. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Mary Knopf and Kate Mishkin and reported by me. 
It was edited by Vikram Patel and Jonathan Hirsch. Our engineer is Mark Bush. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on the episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. You can also join our Facebook group by searching for Telescope. If you like the show, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We want to stay connected to you during this unprecedented time in our history. So please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are open. If you have a story to share, email us at pitches at neonhum.com. Thanks so much for listening. See you Friday.